this the way you want. Like I'm, I'm here for you. And also I'd be like, I want to hear your side of the story too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so anything that I ask you, you can feel free to like ask right back. Like, we'll, you know, I'm guiding yeah. it in the sense that like we're the conversation, but like, feel free to ask right back anything that I ask you. Um, okay. So hang on one second before you yeah. start. I'm, I forgot my can opener for my tonic water. I'll just open it, come back. <laughs> okay. You got yourself all set up. Yeah, we're good. Okay. So uh, who are you? Who is Harry? Man, so I've been wrestling with that quite a bit, like, especially after the exit. Um, exit, that has a lot of connotations with it. But we'll get into that, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, I've always attached myself to starting my company. But long story short, you know, I've been a deep tech founder. I got my start at the University of Waterloo where we were researching as you know, um, we were part of science and I was part of iGEM and all these like side clubs. And then it really hit me that all these researchers who had, who wanted to commercialize their technologies had no idea how to. And a lot of my friends were a part of that world. So I convinced two of them who I thought were most entrepreneur, literally the smartest guy in my class. And a bunch of fourth year design students to say, hey, you've got a really cool technology and sensor. I think we can do better. And once I convinced them, we all sort of like took a break from school, started this company, uh, worked with Velocity and Velocity Science helped build out an incubator program. Um, and since then it's been a roller coaster. Um, uh, I've hired people, I've fired people and everything in between, I've raised capital, I've got investors who spit on me and, and all that good stuff and built some really, really cool stuff along the way. Um, and now I, um, I'm back on the flip side. I help younger versions of myself, younger versions of myself, people who are earlier in their entrepreneurship journey do what I've done uh, and hopefully not make all the mistakes that I made. Interesting. So, okay. I, this is the question that I always start off with. Who are you or like who is whatever the person is? And it's interesting that like some people will like, and it makes sense, talk about their like life's career, right? Like the, yeah. like I, I am an MBA student at this place and like I have aspirations for this or like, and it's interesting that like who you are as a person feels like intimately tied with what you do. You know, that question, the, the perennial question right. in the fifties. Right. So do you, do you feel like that is? an accurate summation of Harry. It's like what you have done is you. Well, this is how I think most of the world world knows me. And this is the easy answer. Yeah, right. The longer and more complicated answer is I spend a lot of time thinking about things I feel that a lot of other people don't. Um, and like everyone has some different version of this question. Like Peter Thiel's example, version of this question is like, what's a truth you hold that very few people agree with you on? Yeah. Um, and I feel like I've, I've had a lot of those. And I've always thought that way ever since childhood, I feel. Um, like I read a lot of li literature. I went through like my whole dystopian phase where I read Brave New World, 1984, and all the, all the, all the dystopian classics. Um, I got into, you know, international, a lot of international translations, anywhere from like Chinese literature all the way up to South American literature. Um, 
I'm also, I don't know if I ever told you, but I used to play badminton uh, professionally, like semi-professionally. Huh. If it weren't for a few turn of events, I would not become an entrepreneur. I would be like a badminton player. Um, that was my first like ever press coverage is when I won a few tournaments back in the day in Toronto and the suburb area. So I feel like my life is a summation of all these things, but it is very, I, I don't want to call it Western because it, it, that carries a lot of baggage with it to tie your work to your worth. Hmm. Um, and I'm not necessarily about that. It's just the easiest form of sharing who I am yeah. um, because it's a common like underlying language that we've agreed upon in our culture. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing is like, how else would you answer, right? Like, uh, I'm a human being on planet Earth orbiting a car <laughs> somewhere in the outskirts of the galaxy. Like, how else is it is an answer really going to like feel if not to differentiate yourself from other people, right? And the, the way to differentiate yourself is like the things you've done, which hopefully is a reflection of your values. Yeah, I mean, like... I, I don't know if you're into like the meditation stuff, but usually when people who are meditating are asked that, asked that question or like have gone deep into it, they, their answers are very, so very similar to yours, which is like, Hey, I'm a human being. Or sometimes I'll even get the answer. Like, I don't know what you want me to say. Um, and that makes it a little awkward as well. So I, I guess, how do you answer that? Like when, uh, who are, who is Steven? <laughs> Let's turn um, it on you. Okay, uh, so Stephen is the, like, I guess, set of experiences and memories and consciousness that inhabits this body, you know, that's sitting on this side of the screen um, that looks like this and has the name Stephen Tenholder uh, and who is uh, focused in on longevity and improvements of intelligence as, like, core purposes for you know, the most exciting possible things that we could be working on. And, and so then like maybe that picture is like somewhat complete in the sense that it's like, you know, my physical body, the consciousness and memories and like goals and aspirations, like the direction, the thing that's like guiding the, the phenomena that is Stephen in a given direction. Maybe. Have you read a, that's a very like a psychology based answer. Like, have you read like my camera all mind? Yeah. Uh, it, well, it's, it's this theory, um, like, first of all, it talks about, like, your memories and your experiences, experiences that lead to memories, obviously, your ability to reflect upon those, and that is ultimately what builds your consciousness. Um, and it's crazy that you gave that answer, because you followed that framework almost to a T. So I, I was like, man, I, like, maybe you're intuitively, you just knew that. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I appreciate the the flattery there. Okay, what role do you think entrepreneurs play in the world? Like, and I've justified this to myself in a number of ways, right? Like, there's the artist, there's the actor who, you know, in Pinocchio, he comes across an actor just as he's going out into the world and he's like, whoa, lured by the world of actors, but like, really, what do they do? They're not like building buildings, they're not. So like, yeah, what do you, how do you frame entrepreneurs and their, like the value we give to the world, including entrepreneurs that don't necessarily end up building billion dollar companies? Um, so I take inspiration from literally my fourth grade teacher on this one. Um, shout out Miss Kepka. Um, yeah. um, 
but she always used to say like you know when we would do like class trips and stuff like that like okay leave this place better than you found it um and I think that's like the underlying principle yes ultimately it's about finding product market fit and can you build something that has value for the world but ultimately it needs to have a net positive outcome and it, it that might sound too abstract so I think entrepreneurs, so just to break it down some more, it's like, if I was just, if I was a person who like, I got really close to my friends and I could really impact the life of my girlfriend, let's say, or a few of my friends, I would have an immense amount of impact. Like if, if I had this Y curve, Y, X, Y curve, where Y was impact and X was number of people. I would have an immense amount of impact on very few people. But as entrepreneurs, when our goal is building product or driving change, we, via our products or via the vision that we share that compels people to do things that they normally wouldn't do, we've typically impacted a lot of people, but in a smaller way on an individual scale. But the area under the curve is usually greater, uh, depending on how far along that journey you go. Um, so that's sort of how I break it down for myself. Nice. Yeah. I, th- I like to think of it as, um, you know, entrepreneurs follow a similar distribution curve of success as do like musicians, right? Like the top 1% yeah. or the top 5% end up doing super duper well, but there's 95% of musicians that don't. And it's similar with entrepreneurs. And that's just kind of like a reality uh, in, especially in the startup world. And so to me, it's almost like there's, it, it's like, in a sense, it's almost like a sacrificial role. It's like, I'm willing to roll this die for you society because, you know, in a sense, like, even though I'm not out there building a building, I'm not like, you know, farming a farm and like giving you a tactical physical thing society. What I'm doing is I'm exploring the space of possibilities for you because there may just be, and there's like reason to believe there is new kind of opportunity. And like my time is going into that exploration I'll get a huge benefit out of it if it turns out I find something. But even if not, we all understand that it could have. And that's where there's like a sort of fundamental value. Yeah, I like that. It's also, I also don't like the word just entrepreneurship in general, Hmm. because I think it gets misused all the time. Like consultants call themselves entrepreneurs. And to me, it's like, you're not, (laughs) you're, you're data crunching an Excel sheet, most likely. Um, but they'll make their resumes sound very, very cool and interesting. Um, so like, and, and I think this is one of the problems. Before, before you know, our generation of like 15, 20 years ago, entrepreneurship was not as cool. It wasn't as well respected. Being an entrepreneur meant you didn't have a job elsewhere. And this is what you're saying you're doing. Right. But now it's celebrated and there's a lot of cheerleaders while that's good I think that poses a lot of issues as well um because there's now a lot of fake entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs as I like to call them um who say they're doing a lot and providing a lot of value but ultimately they're either funded off of grants or uh they're doing service-based business that will never scale and will never have that impact that we talked about earlier yeah so I, it's it, I like your definition. It's just, I don't think that's the definition that everybody uses, unfortunately. Fair, fair enough. 
Um, okay, maybe a couple more like philosophical-esque questions that stay a little bit in the abstract, just so sure. I kind of like get your perspective, but then let's dive in a little bit into like some, some detail. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, what do you think happens when you die? Uh, nothing. <laughs> That's it? Yeah. Like, I, I, I'm always fascinated by the people who are like, you know, my soul transcends and goes into, um, uh, I don't know, some other, uh, another realm um, or with God or wherever else. And the way, the way, my counter argument, I always thought of this, like, okay, if I screw up one small part of my brain, uh, I could lose my ability to speak English or to walk. Um, but if I completely ob obliterate my brain, somehow I can still exist as some entity. Mm. Um, and on, while we're on the topic of the soul, I think, we, every, I think everyone has a soul. It's just made up of neurons. Um, and it's obviously a big area of, like consciousness is obviously a big area of research and it's a big hole in our understanding today. Um, so I'm open to the idea of an afterlife. I just don't think it's the way most people describe it. Interesting. How confident are you that when you die, there is just nothingness? Uh, yeah. I don't like that word confident because, okay, like, for example, if you live in a simulation, yeah. maybe I, I just wake up elsewhere. That's right. right? Yeah. Um, and there's no way of verifying okay. stuff like that. Or maybe there is. Um, so it's like, and I have no data to support with or without. I wouldn't be surprised if I just woke up elsewhere. I'm like, okay, cool. Your, your video game has ended. Like, next, next person, come on, come on along. It's your turn. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm totally open to that idea. Uh, I just don't think uh, it's just when people say afterlife, they usually end up meaning some type of religious context. And in that sense, I mean, nothing happens. I'm open to the idea. It's just, I won't be surprised either way. If like nothing happens. Okay, cool. Yeah. If I wake up, that's also cool. Um, does the likelihood that it, is just nothing or like the possibility that that is what it is. And I think you're right, right? Like little parts of your brain go, it affects your consciousness. The whole brain goes, the whole consciousness goes. It just makes sense. It's the experience of what it was like before you were born or when you're in a dreamless sleep. Um, does the prospect of never coming back, of it just being like forever of not being around, like, does that emotionally impact you? Does that like worry you? Do you have anxiety about that? Have you come to terms with it? How do you like deal with that fact yeah um this is the thing that i argue with my girlfriend the most on um because i i look at death as a motivator I, like to me it's taboo that we cannot talk about death like even when i tell my you know loved ones I'm like okay when i die here is i, I wouldn't want a funeral and even if i bring up topics like that it's like no no no, no harry don't don't say that don't bring, don't even bring that up hmm. i don't even want to hear it and to me, that's always weird. I love going into ideas that you're not supposed to talk about, uh, which is another part of the whole like PC culture that I'm not a big fan of. Uh, but anyways, though, I've always looked at death 
as a very motivating experience. I'm existentialist in that sense. I don't know what happens to me uh, before I was, I, like, I don't know what the world was like before I was born, uh, apart from like you, you reading historical stuff and, and all that good stuff and learning off of other people's experiences. I don't know what's gonna happen afterwards. All I know is I have this time in between. And if I can go back to Ms. Kepka's words and leave this place better than I found it, in, in my subjective essence, I'm happy with that. Um, so it's, to me, it's an opportunity. Whereas I think when most people think of existentialism, they think of it with a lot of dread. Hmm. Like, oh my God, it means nothing has value. To me, it's the opposite. It's, it's a science. Uh, it, it's, to me, it's very freeing that, okay, this is the only life I have. I best make all the use that I can of this experience. Nice. Yeah, that's probably the best possible way to interpret it. Um, and people describe when they're like, you know, given a terminal diagnosis, you know, the last six months or whatever, what they feel is like the last six months, they are living the most fully or they are the most living that they ever have been their whole lives. Um, because that effect that you're describing is magnified. It's even more intense. Um, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. Finally, one idea that I really like is eternal recurrence. I think for some reason, this feels like it's possible. Like it, it, there's a special kind of like intuition that tells me it seems reasonable. So it's the Nietzschean idea that when like, if the universe is infinite in space and time, and it might be, then mm -hmm. everything will eventually repeat itself. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you die is that you're literally just born again to the exact same experience that you had. And that happens over and over again, forever. Um, so anyway, that's another outcome that I feel like if we had to give it like a set of probabilities for the possible things that happen when you die, I give like a large chunk to nothingness, a large chunk to uh, eternal recurrence, and then like some chunk to just like other forms of reincarnation. I don't know why it feels intuitively like consciousness is so mysterious and we really don't understand it. It feels like at least it's a possibility, a large chunk to the simulation. You know, we wake up and it turns out it's just us in a spaceship somewhere. Like we went on a cool, like, arcade experience of our younger self or some other body or something. Um, that's how I think of it. Have you come across uh, Hoffman? Um, uh, so he, he's, he's a, a modern psychologist. I'll, I'll send you a link afterwards, but uh, he has this interesting idea um, where he thinks the world is an illusion. Um, in the sense that it's the physical world is an interface. So, sort of like when we go onto our phone, we see icons like YouTube yeah. or, or whatever else. But every, every, and that's an interface is essentially an illusion. It's not really what happens. We don't get to see the underlying code. Um, and Hoffman is a big believer that like when you take psychedelics, a lot of that illusion and when you meditate, a lot of that illusion goes away. And that's part of the process of nirvana or uh, finding sort of a deeper truth. Um, and it seemed like you were, when you talk about reality and death, like this is all always the other parallel topic that comes up. Interesting. Yeah. Psychedelics are like a whole other, I don't know, interesting place. Have you... Um... Uh, are, are you interested in psychedelics? Have you tried psychedelics? Do you feel like they're 
um, there, there's something valuable there, or do you feel like people are kind of just willy nilly, you know, ex exploring something that is just a fun, fun experience. And that's about it. Uh, I mean, I, I thought we talked about this at one point. Um, <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> so we were, I remember this conversation because we were playing basketball at the Velocity Basketball Court. Oh, yeah. And we, ha we had a long game and we were talking about this. I think psychedelics are a big place, not just tangible, like for the tangible value. Um, as far as, you know, things like treating anxiety and depression and how you reorient the world. Um but also just like understanding consciousness and how our brains work. Hmm. Uh, I'm super happy that a lot of this research is coming back to life. As a matter of fact, I can't talk about this now, but one of the companies I'm working with, uh, if they're successful, they're going to figure out how to build commercially and at scale develop psychocybin without the need of you know, magic, traditional magic mushrooms, it'll be, it's a completely lab-based process, which is super duper exciting. Ooh, that's cool. That's a nice tease. Okay. More to come from Harry. Um, okay. So I think we've covered some of the big pieces. Who are you? Um, maybe like the final philosophical thing is like, <clears throat> what, what do you think? And, and you, I think you kind of covered this a little bit with the allegory from your teacher, um, but I guess not an allegory. It's whatever piece of wisdom, the tidbit of wisdom from your teacher sure. you remember in the past, but do you feel like you have a, um, a clear sense of purpose or like a clear um, motivating piece of meaning that drives you um, to, to action, to like ambition? Yeah, it's what I said before. It's about how do I maximize that area under the curve? Um, and the only constraint, so that's, it's a constraint. I see it as a constraint optimization problem. So that's the maximization part of it. The constraints are what harm will I put myself in? Because as you quite rightly mentioned, entrepreneurship is really, really tough. Hmm. Um, you go through a lot of turmoil. Uh, you put, you're sometimes scapegoated. You work extremely long hours. Uh, you might even sacrifice certain relationships. So what do you have to trade off for that? Uh, and I'm not sure what my edge points are quite yet. I'm always trying to figure that out. Um, but I like to think I have a pretty good tolerance for pain in order to go out and make the impact that I want. And so far, I haven't come across my edge points, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Final one. I, I keep getting tempted. What, like, what is the most exciting new technology that you see on the horizon or like the, within our lifetimes, what's the most exciting thing that you think will happen technological wise that, you know, you either want to be a part of, or you just like are excited to get to see. Um, it's so hard to pick one. You can say a couple if you want. Uh, well, I do think consciousness research is at an interesting point and coupling that with some type of feedback loop with, you know, uh, a statistical model 
AI is not the right word. I think we're far away from AGI. Um, but I think we'll get to see a lot of like brain computer interface stuff in the coming coming decade or two. Pretty excited about that. Um, I'm obviously very interested in preventative healthcare and how we can use the data to optimize how we live our lives uh, and what preventative therapeutics we can do as a result of gathering this data. Um, I'm also very much interested in food and, and hunger and how we scale. Um, and especially now that I've you know, traveled quite a bit over the last few years and I've gotten to see different parts of the world and how they live compared to how we live. We're obviously we're extremely privileged, but what we do as far as energy consumption and what that means economically and how we borrow from the future I think we will be in a place where things will be extremely, extremely good, or we will all be fighting for a lot of resources unless you're in the top, you know, you know, 5% or so. Um, so these are the things that excite me slash keep me up at night. Um, and I get to do a lot of that work now because I work with a lot of deep tech teams. Um, literally we handpick the best researchers from across the country and we fund them like that Psycho7 uh, uh, set of founders that I was talking about. We've got a few others that we're, we're super duper excited for. I don't think I can talk about all of them, but there, there's, there's definitely some exciting stuff on the horizon. Okay, so this is new to me, this like what, what you're doing now. Um, I didn't do like a deep dive on your LinkedIn or anything like that. So it'll be nice. I'm kind of coming in from a naive perspective. Um, Good. So, you know, when I first kind of like saw you come to prominence in the kind of like Waterloo community and the startup community, it was through Medela, Medela Health. Um, can, can you like, I don't know, walk through the story a little bit about like, you know, start if you're comfortable or if you'd like to, um, like the, the kind of like story of, of what it is. And I'm happy to share, you know, for Acorn as well, um, my own startup in the space. Uh, we, we can maybe like trade chapters or something, but uh, it, it would be interesting just to hear kind of like the high level, um, you know, from you. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I'll just give you the broad story and feel free to dig in deep yeah. wherever you need to. Yeah, yeah. So we really started the way I told you. I was literally, so... Actually, I'll even start before that. Unlike all the other entrepreneurs that are our age, I felt like I was the outsider. I had no interest in, I didn't even know what entrepreneurship was until like second year. Um, I had no intention of starting a company. All I wanted to be was like a consultant because I thought that was cool and exciting. Wanted to work in finance because that, that was the hot and sexy career at the time. Uh, I'm so glad I didn't. Um, but uh, so I, when I first got to university, I obviously spent a lot of time, you know, making new friends and partying and all that good stuff. But then by year two, Larry Smith, which I respect a lot, he was my econ teacher, pulled me aside and were like, you know, most people don't ever find their passions. Some people are lucky and will stumble across it. And what about the rest of us? Do we just wait around waiting to be lucky 
Mm. Um, so put in the hard work, go find your passion. So by second, by first semester of second year, I had my hands dabbled in everything. I was organizing uh, the biggest design conference in the country at the time. It was, this is when Ted was really big. So it was a Ted partner conference. I was a TA for, as a second year student for a first year course. I was part of the robotics team for the Mars Rover project. And I was doing research. This is when the $1,000 genome was really up and coming. And we had our own take on how we would solve that, which by the way, failed massively and for all the right reasons. Um, And after that, I essentially put a letter, like I put a one pager together and went to my dean like hey um hey dean like we thought we had this really cool idea obviously we worked hard on it we're gonna probably gonna get a publication out of it but it kind of stopped there if you had surrounded us with the right mentors and provided us with a lab space i think we could have done a lot more he turned around and i was just like okay like you go figure this out he turned around and told me what are you doing over the next four months and I'm going, uh, I got a co-op job lined up. And they're like, I'll hire you. I don't know how yet, but I want to hire you. Go build this out. Ooh. Find a way to work with Velocity and all those people. And that's sort of how the whole Velocity Science thing began. And then on the side, I found my classmates, as I mentioned, and um, my co-founders by just being part of the Waterloo ecosystem. They were working on a really cool sensor technology. Uh, that was small and can be utilized in a variety of applications. And that's where we got the idea of building the smart contact lens that would monitor glucose levels um, and do it remotely and and automatically. How did you, how did you get Uh, that idea? Like you were sitting, like you had pulled the smartest people, you know, you'd brought them together into a team. And then did you have like a brainstorming session? Like how did that idea come to you? Oh yeah, we thought of all types of ways we could use our sensors. Like we thought of, okay, can we do like urine detection? Can we attach this? Like some of the crazier ideas were like, can we attach it to the side of a toilet or something? Um, We had like, okay, can we insert this chip underneath the skin? So we had all these, like it it, it stayed in the project phase for months, to be honest with you, before. And we did a ton of validation before we went ahead. I remember like we went to like, the local hospital and they would have these like they were called like um like type 1 diabetes meetups and we would go to them none of us are diabetics like um but we would go to them and until the point where like hey you guys aren't diabetics why are you here and they kicked us out like we did a lot of stuff like that to just get to know our customers or at least the ecosystem some more um which was a lot of fun and we we really, really liked it. Um, And also to add, like I had worked in the diabetes space well before then. Um, My first real job out of high school was working at a community health center um, in the diabetes care unit. Um, I had then gone out and worked at the intersection of healthcare and technology in Vancouver. I worked with the provincial health authority, not too far from where you're living and I implemented a cloud-based glucose monitoring program. So every, uh, every glucose measurement that happens in Vancouver and the surrounding area is now tied to um, a cloud system tied to your health card. Uh, and it's the thing that my team worked on. So oh. I knew a lot about the space even beforehand. And that's the beauty of co-op. 
but this is sort of the humble beginnings. Um, and we had to obviously do a bunch of our own validation as well. Okay. Okay. So you were in undergrad at Waterloo. You pulled together smart people from your program. You had this opportunity from the Dean of Science to say, let's start Velocity Science. So Velocity mm -hmm. was the existing incubator for entrepreneurs, previously mostly software and the kind of classic, you know, software, hardware stuff. And then you're coming in saying, no, we can do science startups as well. And then that's when Velocity Science starts. So you pull together an idea and what is the first funding that you get? What is the first kind of like, you know, traction or thing that makes you feel like, okay, this is legit, serious, we're going to go full time. So it's funny. Um, I remember the some of the early conversations with Mike Kirkup. Uh, Mike Kirkup was the guy who ran Velocity at the time. The and he was like, yeah, we don't support hardware companies where we only do software. So he turned us down for Velocity the very first time. Um, and, and a few months later, obviously the Velocity Science thing happened. But that even that rejection, and I told Mike this later, like that gave me motivation to go go do this on my own even more because I hate hearing those. It's it's one of the most hated words for me in the English language, <laughs> and I like converted that anger into just making it happen. And we we were part of the velocity. I was part of the velocity residence at the time, and the person who was teaching us to pitch. Uh, was you know founder was part of the Velocity ecosystem and had applied for this grant called SCB, which Waterloo ran, the University of Waterloo ran, and uh, we applied to it, and we were up against the person who was teaching us how to pitch. And keep in mind, we had never, I had never pitched before. My founders have never pitched before, and we were up against people who are already super experienced. Somehow we learned that we had that presentation given to us on Friday. The pitch was on Monday. We stayed up for like 48 hours straight, learned pitching, memorized it, pitched it on the Monday and ended up getting 60K uh, in funding by like the Wednesday or whatever it was. So that was a Waterloo grant worth 60K. Yeah. Wow. Is that still around or was that only a thing then? Yeah, yeah, it's around. I think it's called AC Jumpstart now. Oh, AC Jumpstart, before, yeah. Before it was called uh, SCB Fellowship. Got it, got it. Okay, so you did that before. Was there Velocity Fund final prizes things at that point? They were, but they rejected us. They were like, yeah. So uh -huh. before it was like, you don't do software, yeah. so you can't apply. Then it was, you've got too much money because there was a limit of 50K. If you got more than 50K in funding, you couldn't apply. So we actually never won VFF. We weren't even allowed to pitch. Wow. Wow. And just, uh, I don't know, for people that, that don't know, VFF now is kind of like the standard way that anybody who's doing anything entrepreneurial at Waterloo tries to get their first funding financing, very early stage 5K, prizes, three of them, and later stage-ish with a bit more traction, three 25K prizes. And they do this, I think, once a term. So, you know, they give away about $300,000 um, every year or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, sorry. So you've got 60K and now you know you've got to be serious. And what what term are you in? Like, are you in like 4A, 3B? So between all the velocity, science, craziness, 
and the Medela craziness, I essentially went from doing like five courses a term to like three courses a term. And by the time we got the 60K, I had even registered for classes, but I was like, at this point, man, like I'm ready to go full time. And we kind of packed as a a founding team. Um, Kwai, my co-founder, was in a master's program at University of Toronto. So he had just graduated from Waterloo. It was his fourth year design project. He had just graduated. He was in Toronto and we were like, hey, man, I think I'm going to go full time. Are you down? And we mutually came to this decision that we're going to go work on this full time. And we even moved in together in the same apartment uh, and started working on this. Um, And we both kind of just went at it. I wouldn't say full time, like we were still doing a few other things. Um, Like I was still working with Velocity Science at the time, but it's like I knew school wasn't the best way to spend my time at that time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I made a similar decision myself. And then, okay. So you've got your 60 K you're going full-time it's you and how many other people full-time at that point with the 60 K. It was just me and our two co-founders. So me, Hawaii and Marge, which I think you've met both. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, and then, yeah. What happens after that? So you're, you're going to kickstart things. You're working on product, you're developing, you're probably thinking about, okay, how do we get more money? How do we pitch to bigger people? How do we grow? Uh, to be honest, this is the part of the story, which I am, it's like, let's call it a lot of learning. I feel like we made the most amount of mistakes in the next year. Um, we did a lot of flailing around. We didn't know how to convert a lot of our research into, into real products. Um, we didn't do validation, right? Like we did the type of stuff we're talking about where, you know, we would talk to diabetes patients and doctors and clinicians, um, but we didn't do it systematically enough. It kind of happened slowly and very inefficiently, uh, which was good in, in one sense, because it let the idea stay in the project stage without this external expectation. And B, um, it sort of helped us figure out, like it just helped us learn a lot, but we were definitely not moving as quickly as we wanted. Um, so I think we had our first prototype develop, like a, essentially a bigger version of our smart contact lens in the coming year. It probably should not have taken that long and I'm still like not happy with what we actually built. Um, but hey, it is, we, we got it done and we like put together a combination of like Arduino board and And like these wires sticking out and this was like essentially a much bigger version of what our final product would be. Um, And I think by like 2015, we ended up raising our seed round where we got real money to go build this thing out actually. Um, And that's really when we grew our team. Um, I think we peaked at... I want to say 15 core members and then a bunch of contractors on top of that. Um, And we finished sort of version one of our smart contact lens in 2017. We got some initial clinical data and that's when we realized, man, the correlation is not as, it, it was a technical slash clinical challenge. And we realized we couldn't overcome that. 
And it was funny because Google was one of our competitors. And a few months before us, and we knew those guys, they knew us. They also ended up making the decision to move away from their Google glucose monitoring smart contact lens project to other stuff. Um, so we kind of learned literally within a few months of each other that, hey, this is great idea, great market for it. But technically, like the tech underlying technology is just not there to go out and make this happen. Um, and that's when we I had to make the hard decision of uh, pivoting. So we literally had built this team around this one product. Engineers, ASIC engineered, like we had people from Harvard and people who had worked in South Korea. And there was a handful of these people across the world that we had amassed here in Waterloo. And we had to let them go, which was by far the hardest thing I've done. Uh, is to let that many people go. Um, and then it just became like a team of our core four people. And we started, we pivoted. And I'm happy to go into the details of what that was. Um, but we decided to essentially take what we were very strong in, which is building sensors and selling the sensors as a component to other uh, device manufacturers and players. Um, Which so by the we way, did that. It sounds yeah, like so a very mature pivot. Like I think a lot of founders and just people that are thinking about early founders and people that are thinking about entrepreneurship and startups often make this mistake that like every company is B2C. Every company sells a product to a consumer and there needs to be like some consumer play to it. But the world of business to business is this kind of like it's a, in a sense, a more mature understanding of how the world works totally. and it like makes a lot of sense. So anyway, kudos for that. Yeah. And I think one of the best hiring decisions that I made was we brought on uh, our COO who had 20 plus years in the deep tech industry. He's one of the few people who ended up taking research and converting into a product that ended up being distributed to millions of people. He was one of the first product people at BlackBerry. So it literally took uh, your pager system and converted that into smartphones and figured out the infrastructure. So we needed people like that, I feel, at the table to kind of be like, yeah, cool idea, but here's how the step one of that idea. Um, so anyways, we did that. Um, and we slowly started growing back. Um, and by the end of 2019, we ended up getting to, uh, basically seven figures in revenue. Um, and then good old COVID hit and that threw everything in for a loop. Um, and that's when we decided to sort of call it a day, um, and sort of move on to the to the next stages of our lives. Wow! Wow! Okay. Um, what? So uh, there's, I think, you know, one of the pieces of advice, the standard, you know, Y Combinator, but I don't know, it's probably just out there in the startup world, is fail fast, which is to say, like, don't waste too much of your life on one opportunity. There's a bunch out there, and often people fall you know, fall folly to like, it's my baby, but also the kind of like sunk cost fallacy. Um, do you feel like you should have like, you know, in a sense failed sooner? Or do you think like, 
And it, it doesn't sound like you failed though. That's the thing. Like it's, it's more just like you, you decided there were other things that you wanted to do. Um, or do you feel like it, it was actually the right story? Like it, it took the right amount of time. Um, so I'm of two minds on this and I still have mixed feelings about this. Um, yeah. One, it was great because we were getting revenue but it wasn't the vision that we set out to do. Um, and that was, I think, a big part of what took the excitement away. Where it was like, yeah, we're willing to put in, you know, the 18 hour days and go through all this crap. Um, th- so there was that emotional part of it. Obviously the rational part of it was also, hey, it's COVID, figuring out manufacturing, not being able to be there. Um, plus a lot of our sales contracts backing out, like between all those things. Um, it, if it was probably just the rational side, I think we could have handled it. If it was just the emotional side, we could have still handled it, but it was kind of the combination of the two that made us make the decision. Do I wish I figured that out sooner? Yeah. Um, but it's as they say, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, but given the data I had at that time and the decisions I made, I stick by my decisions and, and what I did. Nice. Yeah. And by the way, I'm I'm prying a little bit and asking in more detail these parts because I feel like this these are some of the things that are especially important for other entrepreneurs, just like in their own journeys, and to like learn early on and like to see examples of. So. Um, that's the kind of intention behind, behind my questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So then, uh, yeah. Like, do you feel like you will be a serial entrepreneur now? So like you mentioned that when you started, um, you didn't even really have a sense of what entrepreneurship was. Like, it wasn't like you had planned to become an entrepreneur in the first place. And yet now yeah. it feels like it's kind of a core part of your identity and do you feel like this whole like serial entrepreneurship and like, you know, the, it, it seems like you have found something that you're clearly good at ideation, execution, building things, bringing people together around an idea, exciting them, you know, that's, that's a lot. Um, do you feel like you are an inevitable serial entrepreneur? Uh, the short answer is time will decide. Hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of our teams, are doing very interesting things. I'll tell you more about what we're doing at Laptop Market. Sure. It's fascinating, some of the projects that are coming out. But now being on this side, I wouldn't quite call myself an investor, although I'm now starting to, I've, I've made some money and I'm starting to do, I'm starting to look at, putting some small amounts of money into a few companies and things like that. I definitely like the building side of it better. It's just a matter of right time, right opportunity. Obviously, um, I think I will stay within the realm of entrepreneurship. Like I'm not going to go change fields completely or anything like that. Um, But to me, like what I look for is, First and foremost, the team. I really got to like the people that I work with. And I think the way ideas come about and how people come about is super fascinating to me. Even before the whole velocity science thing came out, 
I was a big proponent of like, how do we build community and how do we do it from the ground up? Um, and I think that's a big part of the stuff we got right in Velocity. Um, same with like culturally what we did at Medela. Um, like it, we had some crazy fact at one point, a lot of our co-op students, people who did co-op and Medela Health ended up, half of them like ended up starting companies. Yeah. So like, it was insane the culture we had built around entrepreneurship and the type of people we attracted. Um, so to me, that matters the most. Obviously, I got to get excited about the vision and idea. Um, and also, it has to be the right timing. On a personal note, um, I'm also planning on getting married later this year. Wow. Um, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, like combination of all those things, it's not just about the right fit. It's also about the right fit from a timing standpoint. And so you've teased a little bit, a couple of the things that you're doing like now, like that you transitioned to after, yeah. like as part of the transition, I think entrepreneurs often, especially in the kind of like CEO, COO, or like you become specialized in your skills for a very unique kind of company, which is the one that you're starting. And then the idea of ending your role as that, and then going on to something else, it feels like, well, you know, I have this very specialized skill set. How am I going to do anything anywhere else? Like, this is it. Um, so there's a bit of like a skills trap that entrepreneurs get themselves into. And maybe like a bit of a, like, that's maybe part of why, you know, there's a bit of anxiety into like transitioning out if that is what's necessary. So yeah. So before yeah. I talk at that level, yeah. like tell me your version of what happened with Acorn <laughs> and how you're mapping, at least in my experience, and, and what was different because it seemed like you went through something similar. But please, like, I, I, we haven't caught up, so I, I have no idea what happened. Yeah. Okay. Like, when you reached out to me on LinkedIn, I'm like, TKS. And by the way, I've, I, I know Naveed. And That's right. Naveed. Um, from a while back, I did a talk with them and everything. My brother went through the TKS program. That's right. Um, so I know a bit about it, but like, tell me, catch me up on your story. And ha I'm happy to answer your question. I'm not evading it, but yeah, tell me your part of the story. Sure. So let's get me caught up to where you were at that point of transitioning. And then, we'll, yeah, yeah we'll please. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, I started Acorn out of my undergrad as well after you started Medela and Velocity Science. So I was able to like, it was an easier path for me because you had laid down a lot of the kind of like roadwork, which was really nice. Um, thank you. So uh, I am focused on Thanks. longevity. Flattery won't get you anywhere, but keep trying. <laughs> keep trying. You know, like a lot of people, it, it betters them up. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, I've always been interested in longevity I had an idea when I was working in iGEM to preserve people's young cells for their own future. You know what Acorn is, but people listening might not. Um, when, when were you in iGEM, out of curiosity? So 2014 and 2015 are the years that I, um, I was part of it actually in 2013 as well, but not enough to like get on the posters and stuff, but I was there and I was part of it. It's just 2014, 2015 where, where, I, where I was much more involved. Interesting. I was there in the 2013 team. We, That's right. we went to Boston, but I don't remember meeting you then. I think I met you after 2014. I think it was after, and I didn't, I don't think I went to Boston 
that year with you guys. I was doing co-ops and there was like other things that I was doing as well. Right, but right. then 2014, 2015, I got more serious about iGEM. Um, in 2015, it was my, well, in, in large part, the idea that I had come up with that became the project for the team. And I was one of the co-leads for the lab team. So I was much more in the leadership there. Um, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so I was in that environment and then the, like, I've always been thinking about longevity, young cells, cryopreserving them for our own future feels like just a naturally good idea. Logically, it is fundamentally a speculation on the future. And it's like, a de- it depends on new science coming on board, right? Like 3D bioprinting, tissue engineering. We're all excited about that stuff. Anyway, right, right. that's what Acorn does, or that's what it, the idea was. Um, I initially recruited, maybe I'll do a very short version of this to get caught up at I initially recruited some founders from iGEM that didn't work out. Um, And that's a whole little story as well, because the very first pitch that I did was with them uh, at the VFFs. So they, you know, walked on stage, but then after that I nixed them because of uh, equity and, you know, equity discussions basically is what what killed it. Um, And we had a whole little falling out, but then I brought on other people who were in the wings who were willing to come on. They were volunteering at the time and like, they seemed like they were in it for the right reasons. So that's what I started to grow the team with. Um, after 25, I did the same grant that you got, um, the Accelerator Center one, but I only got 30K because I missed some deadline or something instead of getting 60. Anyway. Okay. Anyway. And then, you know, Y Combinator, uh, uh, CDL, like a number of other little grants that built up. Okay. Then we got to a team of about 10. We were at Velocity. And then... So we were building product, we were growing. I was doing tours around Toronto with investors and I met Drew Taylor. So he's kind of an important figure in the story because he would go on to become the CEO. Up until this point, I was the founder CEO. Um, He was a venture capitalist at Epic Capital Boutique, uh, investment firm, whatever in Toronto, Mm -hmm. 10 years Mm -hmm. of experience, uh, more than I had, a PhD in bioengineering, a venture capitalist, well-connected in the Toronto space. He was interested so much in Acorn that he, you know, quit his role as a VC making who knows how much and joined us full time. And of course, I was not about to stay CEO when he was going to be joining the company and bringing his weight. So he became the CEO. And at that point we moved to Toronto and that was in 2017. Anyway. So um, I remember, I remember your party that you threw right before you moved to Toronto. Um, I even remember part of that day where we played basketball and I think we had like an hour or two hour chat was, I think you were about to take the deal from Epic and we were discussing like the pros and cons of, do I take this money and do I get this new founder on? I I obviously didn't know Drew. Um, And so I, I explicitly remember that conversation and sort of what you were going through which in itself is like a micro story that I think the world should know about, like that transition from, okay, you've, you've spent all this time taking a company from point A to point B, and now you have a more experienced person at the table who can take it to the next level. How does that transition happen? I'm sure there's an ego piece there as well um, on handing off your baby uh, team management and all that. Um, like, yeah, like dig into that, that for me. Cause that's, that's to me a big fascinating part. I, yeah. So I think ultimately it comes down to what I wanted as a founder and my mm-hmm. priorities. 
I cared way more that Acorn becomes something real and an actual service and an actual product that gets out there in the world than I cared that I be the leader of a company that is big and I get monetary value from it. If it became a hundred billion, a hundred million billion dollar company, it didn't, it wouldn't have mattered whether I was the CEO at the time or not. I would still have a sizable share of the company and like, you know, the, the details wouldn't really be that important to me. And I would still always have been the person who created the idea and started it from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading a Harvard Business Review article about um, not becoming, not making the mistake as a founder of staying the king of a pile and instead, uh, and, you know, doing that instead of uh, becoming part of a mountain. I don't know, there's a loose analogy, but like startups are already super risky. So anything you can do to substantially lower the risk, even if it comes at the cost of your own stake and your own ego and your own equity is just rational. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was like actually an easier decision than you might've imagined because it like Drew came with so much extra like PhD experience and a connection network in Toronto that was like it, Acorn would definitely at least raise the next round into seed. And it would be probably a pretty healthy one just on Drew's network, let alone a new network that we could grow. Um, So I don't know, maybe it does say something fundamentally about like my sense of ego and like what I care about for my own ego. I definitely have an ego. It's not like I don't, but it's not a zero sum ego. And it's not like And I've always had that feeling at the very beginning that like, you have to be very humble about your idea. Your idea can be really, really good, but you like really have to sacrifice things and like do a lot to encourage other people to put effort of their own into your idea, right? Mm -hmm. You have Mm -hmm. to almost like whenever the opportunity comes up and they like have a a somewhat good sub idea that adds to it, give it to them because now they feel some ownership, co-ownership in the idea and they are way better incentivized. So anyway, those are some of the principles. Um, I don't know, did I answer it well? Do I feel like? Yeah, no, that was really good. Um, very few people, like I, I know you're glossing over it, but that's a trait that very few people have. Um, and a lot of the good founders know, know to make that judgment call really well, which is like, hey, can I grow to be this person down the road? or in the next X amount of time that my company needs, hmm. or do I need to bring in somebody else to do this for me? And it's so good on you for doing that. It's now that I work with a lot of startups, it's one of the fundamental sort of problems. No, I wouldn't say problems. It's one of the things that the early stage founder has to figure out is exactly what you did. Although you make it sound so seamless right. is a, what your team should look like. What is the right team to go out and make this happen and make this idea as successful as it's possibly be? And B, how do you go out and find and recruit those people? Um, to me, that's the biggest trait of an early stage founder is being able to get other people behind your idea vision to the point where they'll commit their time, their resources, capital, whatever it might be. And it seems, seems that you did that naturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt like it came naturally. And honestly, like if, you know, the analogy that I've liked to use is like, imagine you're starting an online store of some kind and Jeff Bezos sends you an email and he's like, wow, I love what you guys are doing. I want to join your company full time. 
you know, of course you wouldn't say like, great, become my COO or like, why don't you like become director of product or something, right? It's like, no, he's going to be the CEO, of course. And yeah. congratulations that you got the, I'm not comparing Drew to Jeff Bezos, obviously, but like, I think just there was enough of a gap there and he was, he brought enough weight and merit that it like made sense. So yeah. Anyway, by the way, do you remember at that party, I tried to play Bohemian Rhapsody on the piano, which by the way, I can normally play really well. Yeah, and I think I was just way too drunk. And I just, do you remember that? Like, that was very embarrassing for me. I don't even remember you playing on the piano. I, I, I remember you playing something. I just mm -hmm. didn't know what it was. Okay, good. Um, but I had fond memories of that party. Okay, good, good. Yeah, because I'm guessing a lot of other people were drinking and their memory is not that great also. So <laughs> that's another one that I can just like blot out in my memory. Like, oh, they don't remember. <laughs> it, was a, it was a fun time. And you know what? That was the, I know we, this is another thing we're glossing over. But we had fun together, right? Like our cohort, if you even want to call it that, our group of founders and the community we built, we could have these sort of heart-to-heart -heart conversations that they used to happen so often. Yeah that a lot of them, I don't even remember, like people like Ken Jan or Alvary were other founders um, at, at that time in the Velocity program, we would have this in-depth chats and they'd tell me like, oh, I remember when you went through this problem and we were talking about it. And I was like, well, why don't I remember that? Which, 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 which goes to show like, we had so many of these deep impact conversations and the community we had built and how open we were about the stuff, about our problems. And I think that was also a big part of our success. 100%, 100%. And I remember like getting term sheets put in front of me by a possible investor. And I, it was like seven, eight o'clock at night. And I would just like run around looking for anybody. And there was Mufid and Eric. They were just sitting there like enjoying some food. And I was like, guys, I can't find anybody else. I need some advice on this. And they like need me to like give this back to them shortly. Like, what do you think I should do? And like, they gave me some of their thoughts. And it was just like lovely. Instead of sending an email and just hearing some, you know, via text yeah. who knows when it comes back, it's like just in person right away. There you go. Um, yeah, that community was awesome. We played like Age of Empires. We did like PvP games and stuff. And yeah. Like, there, yeah, I, you can't underestimate how cool that was. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, I just want to say one more thing. There's a few of us that were part of that Velocity community that were part of student teams. So you did iGEM. I was sort of part of iGEM. At least I was before you. Yep. Pablo was part of um, robotics. The other Pablo was part of another nanotechnology MEMS team. Out of curiosity, do you think there's some correlation between like running student teams or doing extracurriculars like that to starting companies? Yeah, I, I like just thinking about it now, it kind of makes some sense because it's like you are seeing opportunities beyond the standard track, right? Like you're the kind of person that's like, oh, there's groups of students doing this other interesting thing. It shows, I think, like a level of interest in the excitingness or like interest in the field itself when you're taking advantage of like just opportunities that are elective that you don't have to do. You could just focus on your grades and focus on your undergrad and you'll be fine. But it's like shiny object, you know, it's, maybe it is a little bit of ADHD in the sense that it's like, you know, here's a fun, interesting thing that adds, or like, I always saw iGEM as a thing that was helping me build tools toward my ultimate goal of doing something about longevity. And so it was like, I'm getting to to do the core interesting lab stuff now that I like 
I'm working so hard in my grades to eventually get to do in my grad school, you know, master's or PhD, and I'm going to be slaving for some prof. Whereas here's a lab that I can just play with as a sandbox and do what we want. Um, so the psychology of the kind of people who see those unique opportunities as valuable is maybe something that is shared with entrepreneurs where they're like, see unique opportunities as valuable, but entrepreneurs take it even further, right? Because they're just going into like the open ocean and they're just like, you know, this is a unique opportunity that I have to make. I just see the, the shadows of it. And now I've got to like make it myself. So it's a step further. Okay. No, that's, that's really good. Um, I'm going to come back to that because I know you do a lot of work with TKS around that sort of early stage and how you build that inspiration. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in that early stage community, like getting into questions like what made you do iGen? What was that trigger point? Um, and I've been asking other founders this type of question as well, but more on that later. Finish your story. Yeah, we'll I, I, yeah but let's come back to this. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so Drew joins the team um, and then we moved to Toronto. And the reason is that he was in Toronto, but also it was just clear that like there was a bigger network, the hospital systems there, like setting up the cryogenic mm -hmm. facilities that we would need. Like it just kind of made sense. And Drew was part of Johnson and Johnson's J labs incubator, um, right. the 13th floor of the Mars building. And we would get pretty easy, you know, like uh, application and acceptance into that because of his right. connection. So we did. Uh, we built a bit more, you know, we got some small checks in the door on safes and stuff. And then we raised uh, a healthy seed round, uh, 3.3 mm -hmm. million. Uh, and then, you know, from there, we kind of like expanded the team. We did successfully, you know, uh, set up a cryogenic facility with two very high power, high end microscopes with like really good, um, uh, like a flow that was really good for collected cells that, you know, we would analyze, get data on, do statistics, you know, make sure the viability was good. And we had these like great booths that we had like built that would go at conferences. And like, you know, we had the pitch, the website, all of the stuff yeah. that you'd imagine, like marketing. It was also like, we successfully launched like there when if people wanted our service and our marketing was good enough and the messaging that we was communicating, we were communicating was good enough, then people would show up at the door and like they could successfully store their cells and like product launched. That's like in a sense a milestone, I think. Um, and then I like it was clear after going to like big conferences and we would like sponsor them. We paid $25,000 to just sponsor Collision, which was kind of crazy. Like we were an official sponsor at Collision and we had a mm -hmm. giant booth with this fancy like material. And like, it was, it was pretty out there. Mm -hmm. You would think if I remember, you would think if anything would catch the eye of a whole bunch of consumers for something futuristic and interesting like like acorn it would be at collision and we would get like hundreds of people and like some snowball effect and like this person would tell that person they think it's great and then it would sell itself after that right yeah but yeah. we didn't see that um the market traction and like just the amount of interest from just like everybody was tepid like there were occasionally people that were just like wow this is amazing i need this and there were enough of those that it was like okay we're getting some customers but it wasn't like what you'd like, you know, it wasn't the story of like, we launched and then like, whoa, before we knew it, we had more customers than we know what to do with, which would have been great. So that same trend kind of like kept going over the next, you know, few months and years. And like up until now, so that would have been, we launched in 2019. So, you know, almost two years ago, 
Um, and so then up until now, it's like, you know, Acorn has gotten enough customers to, you know, have some substantial revenue and to like sustain itself, but it's not, you know, on its way to becoming unicorn in the near future, in my opinion. Um, but uh, anyway, so. So think, hang on, when, when did you have this realization or when did this dawn upon you? This is when. <laughs> I think it was like slowly but surely, right? It was kind of like, as we tried marketing things and they didn't work the way that we expected, or, you know, we would pivot the marketing and think, okay, let's go after this community. Okay, let's pivot the message and go after this. After enough pivots and after enough pivots in the marketing and the messaging and the branding and the image and how to the website and the flow. And like, there are only so many times I think you should need to pivot on all of those things on like a core product that is like, this is the product, right? Like other than pivoting the product itself, product itself, there's the messaging, right? There's the kind of like, they call it the um, mess, was it message market fit or product market fit? You know, there's yeah. a bunch of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. of those are terms. So we're trying to find that. And yeah. how long, tell me more about like how long that period was. Cause this is fascinating. We went through what you went through, but we, it seems like we crunched it up, but what was your time period when you it was did these year. product market fit or messaging market fit, whatever I mean, you want to call it? it's still going like acorn is still going and it is like mm -hmm. you know uh, un until now still the message market fit is being experimented with and like worked on um mm -hmm. you know with some success here and some success there but like not sure, sure. Much. um so uh yeah it was a whole yeah i don't know it was like it's been two years of that experimentation okay interesting and the reason um, by, the, by the way there's some reason to like for the persistence is the story of 23andMe. They had a similar story at the beginning. They launched and they had like a bunch of customers at their launch, but then there was like a dull period. There was a doldrum that they then eventually, you know, it started to grow after. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, it makes sense. It totally makes sense. We had a very stark contrast. Like I needed a lot of convincing because I was very married to the idea. I knew the diabetes space well. Um, and a bunch of our mentors were also torn when we were making the pivot or not to pivot when we were going through that, uh, through that thinking. But when we made the decision, it was super quick to, to change directions. Um, and it's always fascinating when companies talk about, you know, micro pivots versus just pivots in general. Um, what that process is like, because it's, it, it relates either to starting a new idea and like toying around with it, going back into that project phase, or it's a matter of, um, like, what are those micro changes? Like, is it an optimization thing? Or is it a directional change? And it's never clear what the right answer is. Yeah. And I'm always fascinated by how entrepreneurs go through that. Um, again, more to come on this in a little while. Because yeah. we, we do a lot of this work in laptop market. But that's one of the questions that really, really interests me. Uh, I'm going to pause quickly. I'm just going to grab more beer. Uh, just give me <laughs> one second, okay? I'm just yeah, gonna... yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Guinness. I know, right, Guinness? I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit of a player that way. I mean, they're like cheap and they're like decent. It's a stout and it has this like nitrogen ball that creates a nice foam. It's good. I never got into Guinness, but hey, you do you. You do you teach their own. Um, 
Okay. Uh, do you have a question there or do you want me to keep going in the story? And then there's a bunch of spots that we flagged that we can come back to. Yeah, no, this is a point. This is a flag. We should come back to it. Okay. Anyway, so um, during that period as well, during that period where we are experimenting with different marketing messages, should we go on Google? Should we like go to conferences? Like who exactly is the market and like families or, you know, uh, longevity enthusiasts? There's a whole high, you know spectrum there. So during that whole time, the company is also maturing from, from a bit more of the like move fast and break things, Steven style to the like more conscientious, you know, we are kind of health company, you know, we should be rigorous and everything that we do and all the messaging that we say and like the legal text and like, you know, that world of it being a little bit more like clear cut and and business and like mistakes, you know, have real consequences. And like, you know, it isn't this kind of more loosey goosey innovation and like, like just space where you yeah. just try things. Um, and so for me over that period of time, both the kind of like um, uh, shrinking excitement about the, the prospect, the fact that it wasn't like, it didn't seem like in any time soon, it was going to like blow up to be a unicorn. And the fact that the culture was changing to be more, uh, and it probably is a good thing for the kind of company that Acorn is. Like ultimately, it's going to be storing cells of people for you know decades potentially. So it, it needs to be manned by people that are very conscientious and like rules driven and do things right. Don't cut corners, mm -hmm. right? Like all of that, right? Don't. Yeah. Anyway, so um, uh, for me, it was more just kind of like okay, reassess for myself, right? Like I ultimately want to do things in longevity. Like that's my ultimate goal. Acorn was a thing that I didn't expect to do kind of like you. I was actually already flirting with PhD groups in the States to like go and do my PhD as I was potentially going to start Acorn. And like, ultimately I want to be part of the groups that are like building the therapeutics themselves that are going to use our young cells to do interesting stuff. Right. So for me, it's kind of like, you know, this has been a really great experience and like a great kind of like first act of mine as it, as it relates to me con contributing to the longevity space, but it's not my final one. And like, at the end of the day, there's a whole world out there of like other innovation to happen that I need to contribute to. And that is more my sweet spot anyway. So um, the transition from Acorn to TKS was pretty natural actually, because at a bunch of those conferences that we went to, there were a bunch of TKS students. So these are like super ambitious, curious driven high school kids who are trying themselves to learn as much as possible about emerging technologies and start their own companies and do cool things. Um, a bunch of them reached out for me to mentor them directly. And I, I did. And then Naveed heard me on a podcast. So Naveed is the founder CEO of, of TKS. Um, and then he just sent me an email just out of nowhere. He was like, Hey, heard you on a podcast. I think what you're doing is super cool. Do you want to come in and just like judge this hackathon for our, our students? And I did. And then slowly he was like, do you want to come in for another meet? And like, he slowly reeled me in. He was like, they're good with that. Yep. You could do a talk, but like, also, you know, you could be a director. And I was like, Oh, well, you're offering me a job. <laughs> it's like so weird. Um, and anyway, so after like learning more about it and also thinking about like, this might be a little too much personal detail, but like uh, back to like the fact that we're going to die, like that has an especially like strong effect on me personally. Like it drives some anxiety for me. I both think we need to work as hard as we can to like extend our longevity to like get to a, that very interesting future where we can do even cooler things. But also like if we get this one life, then we should enjoy it thoroughly. Um, and so for me, the opportunity to get to move to Vancouver, you know, snowboard, mountain bike, and like enjoy myself a bit more and like 
get to experience a few of the like last years of my twenties as like a young, capable person without a wife or a dog or a kid or anything. Right. It's just, it, it also from like a life stages perspective was nice to take like a step back from the like hustle, hustle world yeah. to like, holy shit, there's like a beautiful world out here that I'm like not looking at directly. Right. So right. that was the that timing, that timing piece, right? Like what you wanted from your life at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think like, I'll probably do TKS for a few years. It might be four years, five years. It might be a little less. I don't know. Um, but then, and during this whole time I'm reading about embryology and I'm like, you know, I, the, the, bulb, the, the gears are still turning, but ultimately, you know, probably doing a master's or a PhD after to get back in the space, unless, you know, just by talking to other entrepreneurs and seeing what happens and keeping my fingers on the pulse, I will see what other new interesting opportunities come up otherwise. Cool. And just for the people that don't know, tell us more about TKS and what you specifically do. Right. Okay. So um, they, so, okay. What does TKS do? TKS um, is trying to grow up unicorn people. It's like an, it's like a person accelerator. At least that's the kind of like mandate. That's the design. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Naveed, uh, Nadim, his brother and the other directors, there's I think eight or nine directors across a bunch of other cities. So there's like Toronto, Ottawa, Boston, LA, Vancouver, Vegas, and virtual um, uh, we all have, you know, our own experiences and backgrounds in science, entrepreneurship, startups, uh, you know, industry, there's a whole bunch of experiences. And so it's like, can we give unique, unconventional wisdom, um, mentorship coaching that is going to make it much more likely that these, uh, you know, late high school kids are likely themselves to be unicorn founders, like people that influence a a billion people kind of thing. What tools can we arm them with? So that's kind of what TKS does. And then I guess tactically, I am one of those, like, you know, my title is program director or director. So I'm the director for the Vancouver program. It started with me coming here. Um, And so I coach a set of students here in Vancouver um, in that direction. So we, you know, we do sessions and challenges and hackathons. And right now we're doing a moonshot where they're like trying to come up with an idea for a moonshot type of startup uh, just to see what they can come up with and and what they can validate and what we can shoot down and all of that. Nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. I'm always, I've always been a big fan of TKS. Um, I think they do one thing that a very few other people are able to, which is like velocity for us. We had a physical community. Yeah. We were in close proximity with each other. Uh, we would go to the same conferences. We would go crash in the same hacker houses in San Francisco or had our few friends that would take, you know, us and crash on their couches when we were in SF. The TK has, in my opinion, has done a great, virtual version of that and their community and it's different right like it's a different generation these are people who are I still consider myself a digital immigrant like I came into the digital age whereas the people that are going through TKS now are digital natives from day one they're born in the digital world yeah uh to them virtual community is their community but they don't even need to classify it differently and I think TK has done a fantastic job of capitalizing on that and then being able to provide value at scale, which I think uh, 
I think that's the real underlying innovation. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, thank you for the the compliments and I'm sure Naveed will, <laughs> I'll let him know that you were so complimentary. Um, but okay. So we I, went- mean, I got to see the program in a very different light. My brother went through it. I yeah. was a speaker. I've worked with a few TKS students over the years, um, you know, mentoring and coaching them on the side. So, and I've seen the evolution from when it was just a Toronto program. Obviously you don't keep up with it to the detail that you probably do now but I've seen it expand from when it just used to be a Toronto program to what it is now. Nice. Nice. Well, Hey, I mean, it makes me feel better about my decision to, to join up considering, you know, other people like you think it's a, a great thing. Okay. So we went through my transition from, you know, identity as acorn and like sh- not shedding that, but like, and I'm still very proud of the work that I did at acorn. And like, I, I still, when people ask, I love telling the story and the rationale and the logic, I'm obviously still behind it. Um, I'm a brand ambassador technically, and I do still work with them in some ways, but um, how about you? So, <clears throat> excuse me, 2019, you're, you're transitioning out. It's the whole open world. Who knows what skills you have that are applicable? Where else do you go work in VC? What do you do? So, well, when we made the decision decision, I just spent two months doing nothing. Um, wow. A, it was COVID. So I like, it didn't make sense to go out and actually do stuff. And B, I was like, man, I really don't want to talk about this. I still had mixed feelings about whether what we were doing was the right decision or what I was doing was the right decision. Um, and then as, as soon as I started talking to people about it, that's when it was like, it made me feel exponentially better because it was like, in my mind, my goal was always like, yeah, I want to make a billion dollar company. Yeah. I want to make a hundred million dollar company. And to me, anything short of that was failure. Um, and even if I would have like, you know, a hundred million dollar exit, which I didn't, um, I would still think that is a failure. Um, which was the wrong mindset to be in. But obviously I had to go through my own version of what I, what I went through. And after that, I mean, as soon as I sort of announced to my, to my network that, Hey, I'm moving on. Here's why. And here's sort of what happened. I got an insane amount of support uh, in the sense that like anywhere from like, Hey, you did something amazing and here's why all the way out to, you want to work with us? <laughs> and, um, and it was, I think I, I, I definitely had a few offers to go back into the world of entrepreneurship and join another startup. But I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not ready to commit to that just yet. Um, and then the other option became VC and I interviewed with a few places uh, for that. Um, but ultimately ended up turning that down. And I decided to stay in Toronto for two reasons. One, I think this community in general, like Toronto, Waterloo, Southern Ontario has done a lot for me. And it would be really shameful if I took all these resources, sucked a bunch of things away and took it south of the border or a different part of the world. Um, at least that's how I felt at that time. And then second, a lot of my personal life was here, you know, 
my girlfriend who I was really serious with. I'd spent a lot of time on the road. I, I lived in SF for a good chunk of the past few years um, to the point where I was very close to signing like a formal lease. I'm glad I didn't because and flew back because of COVID, but I wanted to spend quality family time um, and focus a lot on my relationships. Again, that personal timing side. Um, so laptop market sort of became like a interesting transition, a very good transition as a matter of fact, because they needed desperately someone like me. Before I came along, it was essentially a bunch of academics and government people trying to run, <laughs> run the program, uh, which was great in some sense, because um, they were very diligent. Uh, they know how to grease the right palms and, and all that type of stuff. But they were essentially copying and pasting what was done in a different part of the world, rather than creating something from the ground up. And they recognized, rightly so, that they needed someone like me. So that became an interesting change. Uh, and not to mention, they gave me a lot of freedom. So I could work with other startups. I spend a lot of time uh, coaching, mentoring other teams, working with a few investors I really like and helping them with diligence, and deal flow and closing deals. So it was just a very good combination of what I loved and giving me the flexibility to do these, all these other things that I was interested in. And to the point you mentioned, it was separating that identity piece, still love what Medela and what we built out. But now it's, I'm, now that I can separate myself from that, I've become this sort of new person that's more multifaceted as opposed to single focus. What is lab to market? Like, what was that before you joined it? Yeah, so simply put, lab to market is, we call it a pre-accelerator program where we can pick researchers that are building cool stuff, um, usually in the field of deep tech. And the, the thesis goes, we'll give you a small amount of funding, take three months off your, your traditional academic life, spend it with other entrepreneurs that are trying to do something similar will hook you up with some of the best mentors we can get our hands on and spend that time doing customer discovery. At the end of the uh, three months, if you wanna build a company on this basis, great. We're all for that. And if for whatever reason your idea doesn't work out or the timing's not right for you, that's cool. You can easily go back into academia and no one's stopping you but it's essentially exposing them to this part of the world and what they can do. And usually what I like to call it, I use the Johari window as sort of the mental model here. The ultimate purpose of the program is when you're getting your business off the, off the ground and you know this, you have a lot of unknown elements. You don't know what you don't know. Our job, is, if we're successful, is essentially converting those unknown unknowns into known unknowns which is like, okay, in order for this idea to really work out, here are all the things I need to do. Do I have the charisma? Can I get the funding? Can I bring the right resources together to go make this happen? And some people will believe that they can, others will not. A lot of them so far have spun off companies, which has been super exciting for me to see. 
But essentially, I see us more as a talent program rather than a, your traditional accelerator. Um, that being said, we have companies raising millions of dollars all the way out to people going back into academia because they realize it's not for them. So we've got a very broad spectrum and we're doing our own versions of experiments and seeing what works and what doesn't work and all that good stuff. And um, what what about Medela now? Like what happened to the assets and what you built? Oh, yeah. So we sold off some of the assets. We still hope hanging on to a few of them. Um, made, uh, yeah, so we, like it still exists as an entity, but it's dormant. Like all the founders have moved on to go out and do their own thing. Got it, got it. Wow, okay, okay. Man, that new program sounds like, as you were saying that, I was like, hmm, when I go off and do my master's and PhD, like I can't wait to take three months off myself and, and join the program. I'll, yeah. I'll know the person who's who's running it. Give me a call. Call me, beat me, if you want to meet me. Do you know what that is? I don't. I'm no? terrible with pop references. I'm so sorry. No, whatever. It's Kim Possible. What is some cartoon? I don't know why it reminded me of it. That was so dumb. Okay. Uh <laughs> So <laughs> there were a couple pieces that we wanted to fly uh, flag back to um, yeah. earlier on. I don't know if you remember. Um, do you remember? <laughs> uh, what was it? I think you were very interested in do people who do student programs or extracurriculars, are they more likely to be entrepreneurs? Uh, well, you answered that well. I think the next version of that is what was that trigger point where you realized you wanted to do more? More than right, like the academia. Just the school. Yeah. Cause you you said I joined iGem because I realized I could do school, which was great, but I wanted more out of that experience. How did that realization come about? Yeah. And the funny thing is that like I have a <laughs> so in my answer to this, I know that I'm gonna be an outlier. Like my answer is not like I will be a data point, but I'll be an outlier data point for you. Sure, sure. My variables sure. are gonna be a little weird. Sure because I had such a clear vision of exactly what I wanted to do already in my future. Whereas I think most people, when you're asking this kind of, like you're getting this kind of data that you're asking for, it's going to apply to people that are like still kind of up in the air, which is most people. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they don't have a clear idea of exactly what they want to do. For me, it was like, okay, from high school, I had an epiphany. I've got to do something about longevity, which means I've got to do everything that I can to get the best grades to go to a good university so that I can get to a good lab. And then it was like, okay, first year, second year, I've got to keep getting good grades. So eventually I can get into a good lab. And then, and it was all just for the cause of like eventually doing something big in longevity. Then I think- well, why? When, where did that, that inspiration in high school, where did that come from? Uh, so that was um, when, for whatever reason, I, uh, I think I was smoking pot or something, but also like just growing up and becoming more mature and like exposure to the internet and like me just reformulating my view of the world. I think I'd always been like a bit curious. I had asked my mom questions like, well, has God always existed? And she would say, yes. And I'd say like, that doesn't really make sense. How can something have existed forever into the past? Like that logically doesn't feel right. So anyway, I've mm -hmm. always asked questions like that, I think anyway. So I came to kind of just want to reformulate my own philosophy. And in the reformulation, I realized, you know, our mortality and like the fact of our mortality kind of struck me like a 10 pound brick. And then to me, it was like, okay, wow, I've got to deal with this fact somehow. 
And then it was like science. Oh, well, maybe we can cheat death. I know it's like a long shot, but like we've got one life. Technology's moving quickly. I watched a whole bunch of TED Talks and I saw Ray Kurzweil talk about like, by the year 2023, we're going to have nanobots swimming through our blood and like be able to, you know, breathe underwater for you know, minutes at a time, like many dec- uh, hours maybe. Anyway, so I became enamored by the idea that we were going to live through a singularity and like technology is moving super quickly. Science is moving quickly. If I devote all of my resources and energy and attention to science, then maybe it'll allow me to do something about this like existential crisis I was having. That's mm-hmm. it. And did you do like any type of epistemology in high school or did you go through that thinking process yourself? Did you have like an intellectual sparring partner? It was all by myself. Yeah, I didn't have a partner. <laughs> it was Wikipedia. I don't know. Uh, Wikipedia. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I went through something similar. And to me, this was my, whether I knew it or not, I think this was my defining moment in high school as well. I had taken this course. We were part of this program called IB, International Baccalaureate. Um, And part of that, we had to take uh, theory of knowledge, which was epistemology. How do you know the things that you know? And it got into philosophy. And that changed my life. I, there's this concept in Latin tabular rasa, blank slate. And it made me question, like, how do I know the things that I know? And what you went through alone, it took me, like, I had a very close friend to this day, she's one of my best friends. Um, every day after school, we would spend hours and hours talking about this stuff. And that's how we, I think that built a lot of the same underlying motivation that I think you went through early. I just didn't have the words to call it how I, I, I didn't have the words or the knowledge to figure out how I would convert that into action or impact. Hmm. But to me, similar trigger points as you but just came from a very different source you are definitely the outlier in the sense that you went through this alone to me that's fascinating i don't think i've met anyone else that's gone through this alone and i ask a lot of people that by the way so you're you're definitely in the minority interesting yeah and i mean like i think it shaped my character as well like i think i have a fundamental kind of toughness because it seems like because I felt like I didn't have my parents to help me with that. Like I kind of knew what their answers would be if I asked them those questions. And like, I knew that like they weren't really authorities at that point anymore. And like the real authorities were in the internet and like old philosophers and like what they all agreed on. So Mm -hmm. it felt like I was dealing with the greatest possible thing that we, that I, I feared and like the greatest existence by myself. And I had to like work it out myself by myself. So anyway, it, I think it, it also shaped my care. Like it built character to have to go through that. And I feel like I, I do have a bit of, anyway, sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to pat my back or anything, but. No, 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 no. This is good. This is very good. Um, this is the answer I was looking for. I wasn't looking for here's how I transitioned in university. Hmm. You went through this in high school. And that's the part that, to me is the is the non-intuitive piece right right yeah and then now I struggle as well as I go to encourage people in TKS for example to like find a passion to like find a north star for themselves and I like you know not so subtly try to get them to make it longevity 
Um, because I think it is like an awesome project and they should be going for it. And like, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm using my influence to like, I think it's a good project anyway. And if they don't do longevity, longevity, like bioengineering and medicine, like there's tools and stuff like it, they overlap a lot. Um, but uh, it, it is very difficult to like coax, coax somebody into having that epiphany, but you can't coax an epiphany out of somebody. They kind of like, maybe a little bit, but like, it, it, it's almost like their minds have to like, just get a bunch of the right hits in the right ways. And then like the maturity happens at a certain point and then they find a a target. They find like, Oh, this is why this project is important and they get a priority. And then when you have priorities, that's when you make good decisions because it's like, well, I shouldn't drink and party too much because I'm not going to like build my career and skills. And I'm like, I have an opportunity cost every time I'm not working on this priority. Right. Um, Yeah. Did you ever go through uh, a cool phase? Did you say a cool phase? Yeah, like a lot of kids I see. Um, and I mean, I think, I think this was a thing that I somehow was able to skip, but it seems like a lot of young people will go through like, oh, I don't need to care about the world. It's, uh, it's, it's not cool to care about something so deeply. Um, I hate that. Do you, A, do you see that? I'm guessing you don't see that in TKS people, but do you see that? And how do you go sort of educate people out of that or get people to think differently? And B, did you go through that yourself or did somebody else around you go through that? I think I might've gone through that before my grade 10 epiphany. Like when I was in grade seven, I like literally wore a red bandana and a backwards hat underneath it because it was what the gangsters wore. And that's what I wore. (laughs) I literally flew to Los Angeles with a red hat, with a red bandana, which is what the bloods apparently wear. And like, Uh it was a whole thing. And like my aunt, as soon as she saw me, she was like, let's get you a yellow one. That one looked great. And like, it was funny. (laughs) So I, I did, but like before that epiphany and like, I don't really consider what I did before that epiphany really meaningful. Um, Sure. Uh, oh fuck! There was another thing there. I forgot. Uh, cool thing. Oh right, Rick and Morty is the answer. Rick mm. is cool. Rick is so cool. Rick is the coolest possible entity, and he's a scientist. Why? Why does he have to be a scientist to be the coolest possible entity? Because that's what wizards are. The people who have the greatest power are the people who understand and can manipulate the world the best. So to me, it's like, I skateboard and I snowboard and I like mountain bike. And like, I use the like, you know, coolness factor that you get from that to like, just shuttle it towards science. It's like, I I try to just like, make them one in the same. Um, Elon is very cool. He's a cool freaking guy. And he's like an engineer scientist thinker, right? Um, So I think it's just, it's about showing people enough examples of how in what really matters, that is the coolest possible thing. That's it. Hmm. No, that's that makes a ton of sense. It. I feel like it wasn't always like that. No, you're right. It's it's easier now. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's easier to care now and for people to think of it uh, differently. Like, I mean, I, I never cared too much about what other people thought in in some sense, I was a sociopath from a very early age. Whoa. Um, Whoa. You heard it first here, guys, on the Stephen podcast. Harry admits he is a psychopath. Every, uh, to me, every tech exec, 
tech founder, you have to be to some extent a sociopath right. in order to do what you do. Yeah, that's fair. Like, like firing people like that um, or putting your company's revenue over certain decisions you have to make. People, I think very few people will admit it publicly. Uh, and I'm glad I'm doing this on your podcast. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do think that's fundamentally true. And it's, I think like, there's therapy just surrounding this one topic that I've just said. Interesting. Um, but anyways, I know we've gone way over yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I can talk about this stuff forever. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll let you dictate the pace and sort of what we talk about. So I've taken the conversation in so many different times. This is very fun. And like, I, I'm, it's, it's already mostly sundown here. So, and like the, it seems like the trend is to do kind of like longer form podcasty stuff, but you also have a life. So um, maybe we'll wrap up in the next uh, little bit here. Um, So in, to conclude, like um, you kind of, I had asked the question earlier about like your future and like what you're doing now. And it seems awesome. And I mean, like you're getting to interact with a ton of like very interesting startups and I'm sure you are also getting like whispers of like, you know, what somebody's working on here and what somebody's working on there. Um, I'd like to quickly pitch you on like the coolest possible thing I think anybody could work on again. And, and there's longevity. Uh, but I think th- is there, is, is it this thing called uh Longevity? Is that what we're going to talk about right now? Well, okay. So there's longevity, but then there's also like the, okay. So like we define our own purpose for ourselves, right? Like I, I, my purpose is to be happy and to fulfill my, you know, spend time with my family. And like, that is typically how people answer the like question of purpose in like a meaningful way. Um, But then there's like civilizational purpose. It's like, where are we going as a whole society as like everybody together, our projects, even if we make it to Mars and we create a colony, it's like, so what? We've got a colony on Mars and like, that's very cool. We can now pat ourselves in the back and feel proud that we've got a colony on Mars, but like it didn't really fundamentally change the human experience. It's like, we got a colony on Mars. The thing that I think has the most mystery and the most intrigue and has the possibility of opening up brand new human experience altering phenomena that just goes beyond anything we can imagine is altering our own intelligence. You know, like mm-hmm. the difference between uh, a mouse and a dog and a dog and a monkey, monkey and a human, like there are entirely new phenomenological categories that like open up when you become a human. Like we experience love in a way that ants probably don't even like come close to comprehending, neither do mice mm-hmm. and like dogs maybe a little bit, but we've got a way more complex version and that has more. And like, what it feels like for you to be on like a lot of Tylenol or painkiller, right? It's like this foggy condensed version of existence, Um, a more, you know, 10 X more intelligent version of us. Probably it's like, Whoa, Holy crap. We were basically dreaming that whole time. And like, we didn't really even have lucidity until now. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway. Mm -hmm. So does that strike you as like uh, that to me? I'm like, fully convinced that that is like, we're going to do longevity and then we're going to do that. Um, there, there's like Neuralink, you know, we could like hook our brains up to an artificial intelligence or, you know, we can modify the genome itself and, you know, improve our neurology, whatever it takes to get there. That to me, it's like, if we need a rallying cry, if we need some mysterious thing that feels like it's at least somewhat within our grasp to aim for that one feels the most like, whoa, that could be very cool. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, it, it is fascinating. Like, if you look at just the expressible genes, um, we are something like 2% different than a, than a rat yeah. from an exp- 
expressibility standpoint. There's a lot of implicit stuff there. If I were to use the use an analogy, it would go. There's a lot of you know background backend code that we st still don't understand about our DNA, but a lot of the front end code obviously we, we get to know because they convert into proteins that physically make us who we are and go through different functionalities. Um, and that two percent difference, at least from an expression standpoint, leads to vast gaps in knowledge, our existence, our ability to reflect, and a variety of other things. So I do think there's a big sort of back-end part here that we need to explore more, and that excites me. I think what you call this is like brain-computer interface stuff. Um, like Neuralink is very cool, don't get me wrong, but I, I don't think what Neuralink is doing is super new yet. I think the vision for it is super exciting. And there's other labs that I can point to that have been doing Neuralink stuff that's also very fascinating and exciting. Um, there's still a lot of, in my opinion, foundational work that needs to happen before we can take on sort of the big challenges and like getting into a really programmable mind, if you will. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that is super duper exciting because if you think about it, we can come up with completely new laws of physics within our own minds because we can change our reality. Yeah. And this is the ultimate subjective experience going back to epistemology. Yeah. Like we, if we can imagine like this is the reality I see and I, in this physical world, I have to abide by the laws of physics as I understand them but maybe I don't uh, in this brain-computer interface world and this new reality that I create. And it goes beyond just a virtual reality, for example. Um, and that is super-duper exciting. I just think we're far away from mm -hmm. it than I think most people are letting on. Um, I, I, I read a good book a few years ago. Um, I have it on my shelf, actually. It's, it's called, Oh, Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson. Um, I won't go into the details, but the, but the fundamental premise is it, he, he talks about how the big ideas like the internet uh, and social media and how these sort of technology revolutions, what it took to change and what were the fundamental foundations that needed to be built in order for us to get the economy economics right in order to get the distribution right in order to get the adoption right uh, to make this a viable technology for everyone um, it's this is a topic I'm more interested in that foundational sort of framework stuff because I work with a lot of deep tech things that haven't yet been figured out like people don't even know business models for a lot right. of things yet. Um, so like stuff like this really, really excites me, but I'm also, because of my own experiences, I'm also trying to ground this in reality and saying, okay, what is the first few steps we got to take? What is the foundation we have to build in order to get there? Um, and I think the Neuralink strategy is a very good, um, it's probably the fastest one, but there's a lot of roadblocks in, on that pathway alone. Nice.
I think you're right. Um, uh, yeah. And that's where you like sit on this balance of like over optimism and hopefully you, everybody is just a little bit optimistic. And so then like it fuels a bit of ambition or it fuels like our drive our desire. Um, and we are okay with coming up against roadblocks. I guess I see this as like, you know, we're 1950 and we're imagining what it would be like to land on the moon. And there's so many pieces that have still yet to come together. But if we fuel enough resources, if we, sorry, pull enough resources together and we like try and we think that it's possible, we'll eventually get there. So anyway, that's, I, I'm, I'm on this kind of like mission to pitch everybody on working on some element that would get us closer to it. Do you, so I would answer, if I were to answer that question, of like, where does civilization go? I want to, there's two fundamental pieces that I think cannot be left unturned. One, I think about it in terms of the Kardashian scale. So we're yeah. what, 0 0.7 um, level civilization right now. And the Fermi paradox says like very few, we, we don't see other aliens. Why is that? And why do we stop? And I think one of the fundamental problems, and I'm actually working on a side project, which I'll tell you about offline about this, sure. um, is how do we make sure this technology, this the set of technologies we built to get us to Kardashian scale of one, or maybe even two, how do we do that in a sustainable way? Uh, and I'll give you a very concrete example. Like social media, Facebook started with this vision of, okay, let's go connect the world. But it's deformed into this attention-seeking system that messes up our dopamine and gives us dopamine hits, um, especially for young children. It's the equivalent of giving them a cigarette uh, no. as they're growing up. And it's deformed. It was never supposed to be that. But that happened because of the profit maximizing sort of ecosystem and capitalistic models that we've built around it. There's a Neuralink version of that that's extremely scary because Neuralink would be a much more powerful version of the technology. Um, and would you sell, what would selling attention in a system like that with the Neuralink look like, right? Um, and I see this in a variety of other places. And what I am really excited for, and this is one of the side projects I'm working on, is how do we build technology-based public goods? So public good, in, in the, in just to go back to Econ 101, something that's there for the well-being of the entire community. Your traditional public goods are things like your power grids, your highway infrastructure, your railway infrastructure. They're physical. These are public goods from yesterday. The public goods of Toronto are extremely tech-based. They're lines of code. They exist on servers. Uh, they, you can't see them, but they have massive impacts. And traditionally, government used to control the development or manage public goods. Now that's done in a completely private setting. And that leads to a lot of problems like the one I mentioned in social media. But it, that exists in almost all industries. Um, so how do we solve that fundamental problem? The, to me, this is one of the foundational pieces that needs to be figured out before we can play wizard or God, uh, to use your sign, your Rick, Rick Morty analogy. 
Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just as a reflection, ah, maybe because I want one outcome so badly, I tend to just kind of like ignore a whole bunch of other like issues and problems that need to be solved on the way there. Like climate change, you know, that could just be like a real thorn in our side for the next 70 years. And it's going to thwart a lot of what we would like to do scientifically and economically, because we're going to have to deal with the side consequences of that until, you know, near the end of our lives. Um, so interesting. Okay. And sorry, with your, like, uh, you, you mentioned that it's a side project. Does that mean that it's like conceptual or are there like, you know, pieces that you're kind of slowly building or? Uh I, I probably have already said more than I should. <laughs> and by um, the way, you can tell me to omit any parts of what you say now. Not to, not to encourage you to say more, but. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, it's, some of it is conceptual. We've actionized some of it. Um, but cool. it goes really well with this deep tech theme, if you will. Because a lot of these deep tech innovations um, are going to become the technologies of the future that will, I think, build a lot of the foundational stuff. Like we have, as I mentioned, drug platforms in our portfolio. We have cultivated meat startups in our portfolio that will fundamentally change. If, if these ideas are successful, they will uproot conventional industries in a big way. Yeah. Um, and some of them will become technology-based public goods. How do you keep them away from this profit maximizing system that denatures into manipulation um, and not the ultimate goal or the vision that we said, because it's very easy. Like you have a very noble cause and vision behind what you're doing, but if you don't take the right steps along every part of the journey, it can be deformed into something really, really terrible and powerful that only benefits a very small fraction of the world. I must be a sociopath because there was a part of what you just said there that sounded appealing. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Obviously you'd want to, yeah. you'd want to make it something that like, that's one thing that people often say with longevity. It's like, um, you know, it's going to benefit the 1% and you know, that they're going to be going to be the only ones that can afford it, but you know, you can't really get a better version of an iPhone and you know, most middle-class people can afford an iPhone um, or like a gaming PC is like basically the, like, you know, you, you string a whole bunch of them together, but it as a unit is basically the best, or at least I hear this from John Carmack, you know, the best unit of computation that you can get. And like, again, most middle-class people can afford it because you know the, what do you call it? Uh, economies of scale and just like the nature of manufacturing means that like the best possible product is the one that is going to be reproduced millions of times. Um, so I think similar principles will apply to things like longevity, but maybe not, maybe there will be differences. Maybe there will be reasons that it doesn't. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I, I highly suggest for whoever is a listening to this and whoever chooses to take on this challenge, please look into like Nash Equilibrium, look into the work of James Cars and Finite and Infinite Games. Um, another another good person to read up is Joseph Tainter on the collapse of uh, complex societies. Um, it's super important to understand 
not just what you think will be the best case version of the technology you're building or the product or services you're offering, but how can they be manipulated? How can you as the engineer or scientist behind this put safeguards and the, and the sort of the right thinking behind it so that doesn't happen? Too often I, I get too many engineers and scientists thinking, my job is just to build a technology. How people use it, that's on them. And I think we got to step back from that mentality. We got to take the responsibility as engineers, entrepreneurs, scientists ourselves and say, no, I think we got to be more mindful of how we build this. I think you're ultimately right. Um, yeah, it's another thing to think about and incorporate into the already complex list of things that we need to actually build. Build. It's like, okay, build with a conscience um, that whole time. Um, Okay, this has been great. I'm, I'm conscious of, of your time and uh, how um, generous you have been. Thank you for, I don't know, going through your story and like the details. I've been curious, you know, for, for a couple of years now, at least, uh, you were definitely one of those startups when I was doing Acorn that was like, whoa, Medela, like, you know, those guys like out there, they're like really doing stuff and we're just like fiddling around with our desks and we can't even figure out how to make a corporate structure and like, um, it's funny when you kind of like peel back the curtain on any enterprise, you know, everybody's struggling all the time. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a difference always between what you kind of perceive what you imagine and like, you know, what's, what's really going on under the hood, but it's it was really illuminating and hopefully, you know, hearing acorn the story and, uh, um, where we're at now, it's, it's, it's really great. So thank you for your time and, uh, and all of this, I really appreciate it. No, thanks so much. And yeah, please let me know when and if you do more of these, I'd love to promote this via my social media channels and all that good stuff um, and do all the plugs. I, I, You know what? Speaking of plugs, I'll do one more. If yeah. you have any of your TKS people or anyone else listening to this, look up Laptop Market. If you are a researcher and are working on a big problem, we want to hear from you. Um, and especially if you're working in the field of research and you don't know how to take your idea from whatever might be the equivalent of your lab bench to taking it to the market, we have the support system and the infrastructure to help help you get there. Uh, so please check it out. Laptomarket.ca is our website. We're pretty big on Twitter and, and all that good stuff. So feel free to reach out. Is it Lab to Market on Twitter as well? Yeah. Cool. Okay. It's been a pleasure, Harry. Um, I hope we'll chat again and I will let you know when this gets gets released and stuff. I have a number that I'm that I'm sitting on and I'm still figuring out exactly how, how I'm gonna publish, but we will see. I'm sure we will. Okay, thanks, Harry. Awesome. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Cheers.